Okay, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear living and heavenly Father, we truly pray that you help us to understand your word today. That you shape our priorities, our values, our aims and our goals so that you will be in line with the future that you prepared for us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs> now the great reformer, Martin Luther, once said that for where God builds a church, there the devil also builds a chapel. Now that's quite profound, isn't it? And what he was basically saying that where God builds a church, the devil or Satan is also out to build his own chapel. That means out of the very same people that God has chosen for his church, there is always Satan or the devil or the world which seeks to turn God's people away from God and to worship the world or other things or Satan himself. And I think that's a very profound statement. It's a very true statement which doesn't just speak to the ancient world or the world that Martin Luther lived in, but also ourselves. In another uh, book I was reading by Charles Spurgeon, uh, he compared the devil to an expert fisherman. And he says that uh, the the devil is such a good fisherman that he casts exactly the right bait for every congregation, every Christian, and we won't even see the bait, much less the hook or the line. Now I hope that uh, for us as Christians today, as a church, we don't want to be hooked by Satan, we don't want to become a chapel worshipping something other than God, And in order to do that, I think we really have to pay attention to God's Word today because God's Word today is such a great warning for us to continue on and worship God and to follow the right teachings. Now, the passage begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 by saying, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And as we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, we see that the church in Corinth has had lots of problems. Right? Problems in terms of the understanding of sex. The problems of marriage. Uh, problems in terms of spiritual gifts. Uh, problems in terms of how to use uh, their, their, their knowledge. And he seems to have left the very most important thing to the very last chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. And here, it says that the church in Corinth were to hold on firmly to the word that I preached to you. And he says there in verse 1, he wants to remind them of the gospel that he had preached to them previously. Now we know in the book of Acts, if you look up here in the slide, right, that the book of Acts, after Paul had left Athens, he had gone to Corinth. And there he had devoted himself to preaching to people. And he stayed there in verse 11, which you can see in verse 11, he stayed for a year and a half in Corinth, teaching and preaching the gospel to the people there. So that's why in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15, he wants to remind them of this preaching and teaching ministry which he had conducted among them. And he said, look, you've already accepted this gospel that I preached to you for one and a half years. You must remain in it. If you do not remain in it, you will not be saved and you have believed in vain. I think this principle is very important. If there's one principle or lesson that we will keep from this passage, it is we must remain in the gospel. And that's why, if you think about it, if you look at this slide which I put together, right? it's almost as if Paul is saying there is this road that they are on, this gospel road, and if they continue along this road, they will be saved. But if they take a detour, they go left or right, if they go off this road, 
then they would have believed in vain. And I think that, uh, that's why last week, if you remember 1 Corinthians 14, uh, if you look at 14, 29, remember last week we were saying that that's why Paul says that when the prophets speak in verse 29, the others should weigh carefully what is said. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29. Because whatever is said in church, whether it's by me, the preacher, by the songs we sing, by Mark today, by the prayers that we, we, uh, we pray, all of it has to be in line. All of it has to be consistent with the gospel that we've received in God's word here, and particularly the gospel that they've received. But we see in the world today that actually there's many gospels. There's the prosperity gospel about how we've received everything now. There is healing gospel. There is the social gospel where the Bible is seen as a way of making the world a better place. Uh, there's even a church recently which I've heard where for Bible study, they come together and they are taught how to interpret their dreams or how to see angels at work. Now, I think the Bible is very clear in just these first two verses that we must be very discerning in terms of the gospel that we receive. That it must be consistent with what God has spoken to us, particularly from the apostles and in the Bible. Because if you stray from it, it is very clear you have believed in vain and you will not be saved. Now, as we come to this passage, what particularly were they struggling with in terms of the gospel? What were they losing in the gospel? What were they not standing firm in? Well, in verse 3, it goes on to say, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And He appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now you look at this passage and he says, the first thing of first importance in verse 3, of first priority that he taught them when he taught them the gospel was that Jesus died, Jesus was buried and Jesus was raised. I think that uh, we would all agree, I, I mean, I, I think we all agree, I hope we all agree, and I pray that we all agree, that this is the heart of the Gospel. The death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. You cannot have the Gospel if you lose any of those things. But here, in verse 5 onwards, he wants to make sure that the resurrection of Jesus is, is, is pounded into their head. Because if you look in verse 5 to verse 8, he goes on and on again, almost like in a courtroom, saying, look, these are the eyewitnesses who've seen the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you look up here on the slide, you can see it a lot clearer. Right? He makes a few points. He says, look, Jesus' resurrection was witnessed at various times by various people on different occasions. Uh, there were six, six sets of witnesses, if you count up here, okay? There was Peter, then he appeared to the twelve, then to five hundred of the brothers, then to James, and then when he says here to all the apostles, he doesn't mean to the twelve apostles again, he means to other disciples, to other people. And last of all, he appeared to me also, to Paul. Now why does Paul go on to talk about it this way? 
Because he, he wants to almost prove it in a courtroom setting, like eyewitnesses. You know, you call one witness after another to show that something really happened. And what Paul is trying to say is the resurrection is not a hallucination. You know, some people say, oh, you know, the resurrection of Jesus is just a hallucination of the twelve disciples. Have you heard that before? Some people say, oh, you know, it didn't really happen. It was just a made-up story made up by uh, the, the, the twelve disciples. But here, Paul makes a very strong point to say, that, look, if you go and check up on these people, you'll see that most of them are still living. You can go and speak to all these people and to see that they really saw the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is not a myth. It is not a hallucination. It is a historical reality. As much as you can prove a historical reality by calling eyewitnesses and proving through the eyewitness testimony that something really happened. Now I think this is very important because if you speak to the skeptical Singaporean and you say to them, do you know that there is a heaven? Do you know that there is eternal life? The Singaporean, the skeptical Singaporean say, well, I hope so and I hope that I'll be there. But then as a Christian, we do not hope in that same way that there is eternal life. We do not hope for heaven. We know that there is eternal life. We know that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, we are not foolish. We are not illogical. We do not have blind faith. You know, blind faith is where you believe in something which is unbelievable. We believe in something which is logical, which is something which can be proven, something which we can be sure about. And that's what Paul is saying here. That's what the Bible is saying. The resurrection of Jesus happened to more than 500 people at different times, at different locations, and they saw Jesus eating, they ate of Jesus, they walked of Jesus, they talked of Jesus at different times. And therefore, you can be sure that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, one of the books that I read, uh, I, mean, I read a while ago, was this book called The Language of God. I'd like to highly recommend this book to you. It's written by this guy called Francis Collins, who was the head of the Human Genome Project, which mapped out the human DNA sequence in the human body. Uh, apparently, reading this book, the sequence is more than 3 billion sequences long. Okay, so uh, that's a very, very long sequence. But yet, he managed with his team to find out the whole sequence of the human DNA. Now, you have people like, uh, you know, other people say, oh, you know, scientists cannot become Christians. But he became a Christian after he became a scientist. After he received his doctorate, after he became a scientist, he became a Christian. And why did he become a Christian? Well, on page uh, 221 of his book, he said, During my boyhood years, sitting in the choir loft of a Christian church, I really had no idea who Christ was. I thought of him as a myth, a fairy tale, a superhero in a just-so-bedtime story. But as I read the actual account of his life for the first time, in the four Gospels, the eyewitness nature of the narratives and the enormity of Christ's claims and the consequences gradually begin, began to sink, sink in. So for him, I remember listening to him in a BBC interview saying how as a scientist, he decided to apply his scientific mind to the Bible. And he found that the eyewitness testimony proved to him the reality of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection. So as we look at this passage, there are times where we doubt the resurrection, our resurrection. Maybe, you know, if you're sick, if you have cancer, 
You might ask yourself, will I ever rise from the dead? Is heaven really real? Well, that's why we have to screw into our mind 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because the resurrection of Jesus is not an imagination, it's not pie in the sky, but it is real. It is real because it's witnessed by eyewitnesses which are told to us and we can trust them. Now, we come to verse 12 and verse 12 is very important so you need to look at your Bibles with me because verse 12 is the problem that the Corinthian church faced. Verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead, of the dead? Now that is the problem, the, the gospel problem the Corinthian church was facing. Some people in the church were saying that there was no resurrection from the dead. Now why was this happening? Uh, because obviously, for us here, I remember listening to this sermon before reading the commentary, you might think, well, what's the big deal, right? We come to church, we celebrate Easter, you, you say the Apostles' Creed once a month during Communion Sunday, so I presume that all of you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So, you know, you can, many of you think, okay, I can fall asleep in the sermon now, right? I don't have to pay attention anymore. Because when you actually read uh, the historical context of Corinth, uh, some commentators feel that the problem with the church in Corinth, why didn't they believe in the resurrection? Well, maybe the problem was they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection, but they believed in a spiritual resurrection. That's what some commentators say. Because there was Greek philosophical thinking, and for the Greek thinking, they had a problem with bodily resurrection, but they didn't have a problem with spiritual resurrection. Because for the Greek philosophy, the problem for the, you know, the Platonists, the people of Plato, the great philosopher, the problem was the immortality of the soul. So the body you could do away with, but the soul was what really was important. So when Paul, if you look up here, when Paul was preaching in Athens, the heart of Greek philosophy, uh, he was doing a good job preaching to them, except when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And why did they sneer? Because the Greeks did not believe in the resurrection of the body. They believed in the immortality of the soul. So maybe that was the problem here in Corinth. Maybe they had a problem with bodily resurrection. But immortality of the soul, that was fine. So you know, if you talk about it to Singaporean Christians, do we have that problem? No, right? I mean, we don't have that problem of bodily resurrection or immortality of the soul. You either believe in the resurrection or you don't. But I think the second problem that also happens in, the, in Corinth was that as we've been going through uh, the book of Corinthians, we see that the Corinthian church was very triumphalist. They were very triumphalist in the sense that they thought that they have, it, they have everything they needed. Every spiritual gift. You know, like McDonald's. You know what's the motto for McDonald's? We have it all. Right? McDonald's says we have it all. So the, the triumphalist says we have it all. It's a bit like the prosperity gospel today. Which is, I think the prosperity gospel today has a lot in common with what was happening in Corinth then. They thought that they had it all. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, remember we read this? Uh, and this is Paul accusing the Corinthian church. Already you have all you want. You see the McDonald's syndrome. Right? We have everything you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings and that without us. How I wish that you really become kings so that we might become kings with you. 
For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. So, how did the Corinthian Christians see themselves? I've highlighted for you. They saw themselves as rich, kings, wise, strong, honoured. Right? They had it all. They were triumphalists. They already had heaven on earth. So if you really have heaven on earth, why do you need to look forward to eternal life? Because you've already got everything. Now again, we might sit here as a church and say, well, you know, we don't have the problem. We don't embrace the prosperity gospel. We don't feel that we have it all. So maybe we don't have to pay attention to 1 Corinthians 15. But I think that actually 1 Corinthians 15 speaks powerfully to all of us. Because we may not be Platonists, we may not be triumphalists, but I think for many Christians we are materialists. And even from the very beginning, right when Jesus was preaching, materialism is a problem where we live only for this world. Do you ever feel that, that even as a Christian you live only for this world? See, is the attitude of chapter 15, verse 32, let us eat or drink for tomorrow we die. Jesus experienced this twice in his life. In uh, Luke, the next slide, Luke chapter 18, a man came up to Jesus and said, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you have to give up everything, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then you have treasures in heaven, then follow me. But the rich man went away very sad. And what was wrong with this man? As a materialist, he could not let go of this world. He could not let go of the things of this world. A second person came to see Jesus. Oh, actually, he didn't come to see Jesus. Jesus told him this parable, so this is not a real person. But he spoke about a person who was like this, who approached him. And Jesus spoke about this man who was a very rich man, but he only lived for himself. And his attitude was to take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. And Jesus said to this man, in this, uh, God said to this man in this parable, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? See, the materialist cannot let go of this life, and the materialist thinks that this life is all there is. So 1 Corinthians 15, it's not just about the prosperity gospel, it's not just about the triumphalist or the platonist, but it's about whether you as a Christian, whether I as a Christian, have the right attitude to this life and the life to come. Now there's a story, a true story I heard of a man who died. And after this man died, his family came together to comfort themselves that he was probably in heaven. So he says, oh, you know, this guy is a good man. He's probably in heaven right now. He's having a good time. But his grandson refused to be comforted by this talk that this man had gone to heaven. And they said, why? You know, boy, why are you so sad? Why are you so distressed? Why, you know, don't you believe that your grandpa is in heaven? And this boy said, I saw my grandfather go on many trips. Wherever he went somewhere, he was always very well prepared. And whenever he went somewhere, he always talked about where he was going. 
But my grandpa never talked about heaven and he didn't look very well prepared to go there. And I think that can be true of many Christians, isn't it? We come to church, we uh, read the Bible, we go to Bible study, but we don't actually think about heaven, we don't actually think about eternal life, we don't actually say that we don't believe in heaven, we don't say that we don't believe in eternal life, but we live as though this life is all there is. So what does Paul say? Oh, let's look forward in uh, verse 13 to verse 19. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Now, again, it's easier to understand this passage if, I, if you look up on this slide, because Paul, or the, or the God using Paul, has, has divided up the arguments into two parts. And what he says is, the first part is, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is an immediate impact on all Christian ministry, on the apostles' ministry. See, the first point is, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then what happens? Then even Christ, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then the preaching of the apostles is useless, and so is their faith. And more than that, they are false witnesses about God. So if they say that there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus Christ cannot be raised. And if Jesus Christ could not be raised, what about all those witnesses, the 500 plus witnesses? They are all false witnesses. They are all seeing dreams and illusions and, and visions. It is not real. The second part in verse 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, so you say, okay, there's no resurrection of the dead, therefore, Jesus has not been raised. Then what happens then? What is the impact on your faith, on your on your state before God. Well, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, you have, those who have fallen asleep are lost, they will never rise again, and you are to be pitied more than all men. What happens here is you take one little change and you change the gospel and say there's no resurrection of the dead, and there are seven, seven bad consequences. Bad consequences to Christian ministry, bad consequences to the church, bad consequences to their faith, bad consequences to their stand and their state before God. See, what he's trying to say here is not to say that, well, just because there are bad consequences, the resurrection must be true. Okay, that doesn't make sense. Just because something is a bad consequence doesn't make something true. But he's saying, look, can you not see that the gospel is all interrelated and if you change one part of it, it changes everything of it. Do you realize that? When I was in theological college, that was one thing that really was impressed upon me. If you change one part of the gospel, you will always make changes to the other part of the gospel. It's all interrelated. It's like a big spider web. Right? So you think for a moment, let's say you reject the Holy Trinity. You don't believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost being uh, one God. You reject the Trinity, you say, oh, well, you know, they're all different parts. 
then where will that lead to ultimately? Ultimately, you will say that Jesus is not God. Jesus is somewhat less than God because they are not part of the Trinity anymore. Let's say you say, okay, I reject the virgin birth. I don't believe in the virgin birth. Where will that lead to? If you don't believe in the virgin birth, then you will soon reject the miracles of Jesus and the miracles of God. If you don't believe in the miracles of Jesus and the miracles of God, then you deny the power and providence of God. And then if you, don't, if you deny the power and providence of God, then you will, you will say that there is no point in praying because God cannot do anything. And this is exactly the point that Paul is making. You take away the resurrection of the dead, then you are saying that Jesus isn't uh, rise. Then you are saying that we are still in your sins. We are all false witnesses. Again, Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther appears a lot in this sermon. He said this, and that's a very good point. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the word of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Him. See, you can profess the whole of the gospel, but if you do not profess the part which is being attacked, then you actually lose the gospel and you no longer profess Christ. But Paul goes on to say, look, these consequences cannot come about because in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. There is a resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes those who belong to him. The end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now Paul here gives three powerful arguments as to why Jesus' rising will lead to our rising. And the first argument, he comes from farming, agricultural, land. Okay, so first fruits. We don't really understand first fruits because you know, we live in an urban context, urban society. First fruits literally means it's the first fruit, the first bloom of the fruit which will be representative of all the, 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 the crop coming to fruition. So, you know, you, you go into your apple orchard and you see finally one apple turning red or ripe. Then you know that, okay, the next day I come, there'll be more fruit, more apples which will be ripe. And if I come the day after that, there'll be more fruit. And the next day, the next day, until all the whole orchid will be ripe, isn't it? So, it's the same thing for us. I mean, you, you walk down the street to your durian shop, in the Upper Serangoon Road. And, uh, well, the first D24 or the first Maosan durian of the season has come. And you know that, wow, this is the beginning of the season, right? It's like the, this is the first fruits. And next week when you come, there will be more. And the week you come later, there will be more. And the week after that, there'll be, the whole store will be full of Maosan or D24. Because the first fruits represents the beginning of the crop. It's representative of all of it coming in. And Christ is our first fruits. He is representative of all who follow Him, that they too will rise to eternal life. But then he goes on to say, if you belong to Adam, well, you will die. Because Adam died. You follow the head. You follow 
the head of the family. But if you belong to Jesus, well, what happens to Jesus? Jesus rose again, so you will rise again. So, uh, it's a very good illustration that a pastor gave. He said, you know, um, I noticed in the uh, YOG, the Youth Olympics, they didn't have high jump. Or did they have high jump? There is high jump in the Youth Olympics, I just didn't see it on TV. Okay, and how do people do the high jump? Okay, I, I, I'm not going to do a demonstration, right? But, you know, when you do the high jump, what happens? You, you run really fast, and then you jump, and then you put your head over the bar, and then you... Your, your, then your chest goes over, then your hips and your legs, and finally, you go over onto the other side, and you plop onto the mat. Correct? That's how you do the high jump. And this pastor made a good point. He said, Jesus is like that. He is the head who, who's gone over the bar, and then the rest of the body follows after him. I thought, well, that's a really powerful illustration. Jesus is our head who's gone over into eternal life, and the rest of us who are his body follow after him because he is our head. So because he's our first fruits, because he's the head of us as a church, as a family, we too will rise with him. But last of all, Paul reminds them that death is an enemy. When Jesus comes again, he will put all dominion, authority and power under his feet and the last enemy to destroy is death. What is the enemy of life? Is death, isn't it? Because death puts an end to life. And Jesus will defeat death when he comes again. There will be no more death, no more bereavement services, no more nursing homes, no more uh, cremation. There will be no more death because death will be defeated. So the argument is actually very straightforward. I'll put it up here. Someone said he likes all the pictures, so I've got pictures. 1 Corinthians 15, what we study is very straightforward. It says that Jesus rose. Jesus rose because we know that from the eyewitness accounts. Because Jesus rose, he is the first fruits, the first fruits of many who will rise from the dead. He is the pioneer or the head of the church or the family who will rise again. And he will defeat death once and for all when he comes again. Therefore, because Jesus rose, we will rise as well. There will be a resurrection of the dead. Therefore, in verse 33 to 34, Paul says this, or God says this to Paul, Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Now who is this bad company? Well, presumably, as we've been reading through 1 Corinthians, the bad company are these people in, in, in 1 to 4 who, had, who thought they had superior knowledge. They thought that they knew more than the Apostle Paul. It could be the people in 1 Corinthians 14 who thought that they had these spiritual gifts which made them uh, have a better authority than Paul. And what Paul says is that these people who look so knowledgeable, so superior spiritually, were actually ignorant of God. They didn't know God. They seemed to know God, but they didn't know God. In fact, they were leading them astray. They were being misled. So verse 34 says, Come back to your senses, right? And literally it means sober up if you're drunk on wine or wake up as if you're sleepy. So, so don't, you know, wake up to your situation because they are sinning. They are sinning because they do not understand the gospel correctly. Now, I think there's a very important point. 
when you get the gospel wrong, it is not a small matter. When you get the gospel wrong, it is not a difference of opinion, but it's actually sinning. So, you know, we say now, uh, people are living in sin. And we all say, oh, you know, people are living in sin, must be sleeping with someone, right? Or must have some mistress or something, living in sin, or they're not married. But then here, actually, living in sin is actually living with the wrong gospel. Living with the gospel thinking that there is no resurrection from the dead. They are living in sin. And Paul says, you've got to wake up. You've got to wake up. Come to your senses. Now, the challenge for us as we read this is not to say, oh, you know, there are other people out there who are struggling with this. I think it's pointing to us as well. We, like I said before, we don't have to say that we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. We, we might be living as if there's no resurrection of the dead. Now, Philip Yancey, who is a very popular writer, wrote this thing. He says, if you assume that 99.99999 or whatever percent of your existence will take place in heaven, which is true, isn't it? What is eternity compared to 80, 70, 60 years? So, you presume 99, I don't know how many 9% of your existence will take place in heaven. Then isn't it bizarre that you don't think more about heaven or you don't think more about eternal life or you don't live more for it? And Philip Yancey says there are two reasons for that. One is that we accept that death is the end. We, 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 we somehow just think like the world thinks. And think, okay, we die and that's it. So we eat, live and be merry. Or we are now not looking for heaven in eternal life, but we look for heaven on earth. We are so rich and affluent and happy on earth that we don't look forward to heaven. And I think that's really true. Every day you open the newspaper and uh, you say to yourself, well, I, know I should be living in Sentosa Cove. I deserve to be living in Sentosa Cove. Or you look at the, the restaurant and you think, you know, I should be eating there. Or, you know, you look, I, I should be wearing that watch or wearing those clothes. You know, somehow, if I don't have that, uh, something is missing from my life. I should, be, I should be looking like Brad Pitt. Or you should be looking like Angelina Jolie. Right? And what happens is we focus so much on this world that we forget, actually, the world to come is, the, is where we really belong. Because that's where we will belong for eternity. Jesus warned right, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now where is your heart? Is your heart looking to eternal life in heaven or is it looking into this present world? Is your, are your dreams, are your goals, are your aims shaped by eternal life in heaven or is it shaped by this life? I remember going to Malaysia uh, with uh, my dad and his group of friends and uh, we were playing golf and I remember there was some of uh, his friends were really uh, motivated to win. Right? I was thinking, well, this is not the Olympics, you know. Right? I think, you know, in a life eternity, whether you win or not, does it really matter? No, it doesn't. And then, you know, we were chasing after the best seafood. You know, wanted to find the best seafood restaurant. You know, and, and none of the seafood restaurants came up to, to the right expectation. Right? There's always something wrong with one dish. The, the fish was overcooked. Uh, you know, this thing was not fresh enough. So on and so forth. And you sort of think, well, in the light of eternity, does it really matter 
whether you can find the best seafood meal. Again, the last quote from, quote from Martin Luther, I, 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 you know, this is the best quote, I think. He says that Martin Luther said, the Christian only needs two days in his calendar. The Christian only needs two days in his calendar. This day, today, and that day, the day when Jesus comes again. Since that's all we really live for, isn't it, as Christians? We live for today, and we live for the day when Jesus comes again. And he said, a very good point, he said that we must live this day, today, in light of that day. We must live this day in light of the day when Jesus comes, when we will receive eternal life. Is that how we live our life? Do we live this day in light of that day? Do we make our decisions, our aims, our hopes, our dreams, our goals today based on eternal life or do we do it based on this present life? Now I'm going to uh, share an illustration which I guess may be a bit shocking from a worldly point of view. But uh, my mother died uh, two years, three months ago and whenever my relatives come together, uh, when we talk about my mother, they will always make the point, or, or many of them will make the point that they'll say she died before her time. She died young. Because she died in her early 60s, and um, she was really healthy. She used to play tennis three or four times a week. Her relatives, her brothers were all, and her father was still alive at 90, and they were, some of them were smokers. They, you know, my mother's uh, family line, they, their constitution was fantastic. They could eat chakwe tiao and... Uh, uh, you know, peaking down or whatever, and, and the fat every day and still have low cholesterol. Okay? And, uh, and that's why I was such a surprise when, when, when she died. And for many of uh, relatives, you know, this cancer was a real curse. But with, when I think of it from the light of eternity, I think the cancer was actually a blessing. And that's a very shocking thing to say in the world, to say that the cancer was a blessing. But before she had cancer, she lived only for this life. Her attitude to life was eat, drink and be merry. And she never read the Bible. She never went to church. But after she uh, got cancer, God gave her two more years of life. And she went from being a non-Christian to being, I guess, a really fervent believer. I think she read the Bible more than I did. Uh, I gave her this book, uh, For the Love of God. And she would read through every day's reading and all the Bible reading passages for that day. And after one year, she came to see me. She said, I finished all this. Do you have another one? So I gave her volume two. So she went from someone who never read the Bible to someone who was reading the Bible through, through the whole year. She probably read through the whole Bible twice before she died, I think. And in the world's eyes and, and in God's eyes, you think, well, what did she lose? She lost maybe 10 years more of her life, 20 more years, maybe 30 more years. 40 more years maximum of her life? That's what she lost. But what did she gain? In those two years after she became a Christian, she gained eternal life. When you consider 30 or 40 years compared to eternity, there is no comparison. And I think that that's the same for us, isn't it? If we look at life seriously, we say we believe in eternal life, we believe we will rise again of Jesus, then surely the way we live our life now must be based on eternity. So, we are not Platonists, we are not triumphalists, we are not materialists, but what are we? We are resurrectionists. Therefore, in your life, 
in your work, your personal life, your social life, your family life, in all the values and dreams and hopes that you have, if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then you must believe that you will rise from the dead. And all of it must be shaped by that future, that day. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that Jesus truly rose from the dead. And we can be confident of it because your word tells us so and because of the eyewitness testimony of so many people. Dear Father, help us to see that as Jesus rose from the dead, so he promises that those who follow him will rise to follow him. Help us, therefore, to let that very fact, the resurrection of our bodies, shape and determine how we live today. We pray that we will not live for this life and this world alone, to merely be like the rest of this world which eats, drinks and be merry, but to live for eternal life, for heavenly life, for the resurrection life. Help us to shape our dreams, our hopes, our values, the things that we do, our actions, our living, based on the resurrection that will come through our faith in Jesus. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.